we're in the Old Testament. We're in the book of Exodus, chapter 20. And over the next 10 weeks, we're going to look at each one of the Decalogue, each one of the Ten Commandments individually. Last time we were together, I think it was three weeks ago or four weeks ago, um, we looked at primarily... Uh, I tried to answer the question and look at the Ten Commandments kind of as a whole. And I wanted to answer the question, you know, what did they mean? Why did God give them? And then approach them one by one, which is what we're doing uh, tonight. People wonder, why is it so important for us as New Testament believers, saved by the blood of Christ, not by the law, but by the grace? Why is it so important for us to study the law? And I would argue this. It's important for you as a believer to understand this, these Old Testament laws because although you know 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture was given by inspiration of God and is profitable, right? We, we all know that. It's all Scripture, not just the New Testament. If we just camp there in the New Testament, we're missing, missing. That's why I'm spending so much time on Wednesday night teaching through the Old Testament, and in some passages in the Old Testament, listen, they're just more crucial. They're keys to unlocking the understanding of the new. Jesus quoted the Deuteronomy more than any other book, so understanding Deuteronomy is really important. What's Deuteronomy about? It's an explaining the second dut, dut, duet, to the second giving of the law, Deuteronomy. So Jesus quoted Deuteronomy. We're looking at the first giving of the law as God is giving these laws to his people. And they're really keys to understanding God's standards, how God wants to be worshipped, how God desires to be uh, loved. What, and tonight we're going to really see how important a personal relationship with God is. So these commandments are really, really important. They come to us in this book of Exodus that records the children of Israel, Jacob's sons, the 12 tribes that have been in Egypt, in bondage, in sin, um, uh, uh, literally. They've been in sin and bondage for somewhat close to 400 years. And God had to intervene. They couldn't save themselves, just like God intervenes in our lives by his grace. He intervened, and he saved them miraculously with 10 plagues, remember? 10 specific plagues that went against the 10 main gods of Egypt, very idolatrous people, Egyptians. And we found out in Greece, very idolatrous people. Gods, goddesses, carved images everywhere. And, and that's the way it was in Egypt. That's the way it was in Macedonia. That's the way it was throughout the world. And so God delivered his children, the, the, the 12 tribes of the man Israel, Jacob, whose name was changed, remember, to Israel. That's why the reference, you'll hear me say, children of Israel. Chil who are the children of Israel? They're the Israelites. This is a new nation. God has pulled them out of sin. They've actually gone through the desert of sin. If you look at the definition, it's sin. Sinai, S-I-N, sin. They've been, been, God is taking them out of sin. He's claimed them for his own people. And now he's going to give them these ten laws that make them different than every other people. He wants them to follow him. So it's important for us to understand the laws, not because we're saved by the law. We're not saved by the law. We're saved by grace. But it's important for us to understand all these basics, these standards, these firsts, that are better described in the, the consecutive books, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. 
So we have Genesis, the beginning of the world. We have Exodus, God's calling out his people. And now his people are at the base of Mount Sinai, Exodus chapter 20. And God is giving the law for his new pe- for this uh, new nation, this called out assembly of people. Doesn't that sound familiar? That's what Paul says in the New Testament, that we are the ecclesia, the Greek word that means the called out assembly. The church, Jew and Gentile together, it's a mystery in the Old Testament, but it's known in the New. And so there's parallels. I'll try to keep giving you these parallels, and I hope that your mind goes ding, ding, you know, as we go through these, and you'll see the the glory and the wonder of all of God's Word, uh, especially here in the the Old Testament. Tonight we come to the the, each commandment we're going to do individually. Tonight we come to the first one. I've called it, obviously, on the screen behind me, putting God first. Putting God first is what I've called this. This commandment of having no other gods but God is, is key, really, to all the commands. And if you obey this one, all the other ones fall into place. And you'll see that as we study all of them, but primarily this one tonight. So let's ask God's blessing, and then we'll get into the word. Father, I'm so grateful for this group of people that have come together to hear your word. They desire, Lord, to learn and to grow. Thank you, Lord, for a time that I have to study. Thank you for a staff that works hard so that I can spend time in the word and then share the truth of of your word. I pray by your Holy Spirit I would speak, that it would be your word and not my embellishment, that it would be your word and not our Uh, preconceived notions, but the pure milk of your word would come through and it would be meat to us as your children. Teach us as we study this Old Testament book. In Jesus we pray. Amen. Now, let me just, let me go go back. It was three uh, three weeks ago. Let me go back. I'll do it really quickly. Uh, I just want to review really basically because we looked at the Ten Commandments in that first study a few weeks ago and answered the question, what's the purpose of the Ten Laws? The answer is the, the Ten Laws do not save, and, and you have to remember that. The Ten Laws were never given by God to produce salvation. Only by God's grace are we saved. The purpose of the law has always been for you and I to look at the law, to see our lives, and see that we do not measure up in any way, shape, or form. That's what the law is there. The law is a schoolmaster. The law just shows you that you're a loser, that you're a sinner, that you need God. That's what the law is for. That's, that's its only purpose. It will not save. You could quote the law. You can learn the law. You could try to live by the letter of the law. Remember the guy that came to Jesus and said, I've, I've lived the law. I've done everything. What more do I have to do? And what, Remember, Jesus said, well, go and sell all your riches, give them to the poor, and then follow me. And the man... And, and just a sullen, uh, walked away sad, and Jesus said, he can't do it. He, he just can't do it. See, you can't come to God through living out the law. You can only come to God by his work in your life, and you're only saved by the grace of God, not by the law of God. So the law was never given to produce salvation. The law reveals how far a person has fallen from God's demands. So as we look at these laws, I hope that you're challenged. I hope that you look at them in light of, boy, I I just really need to live a, a more holy life. I need to make better choices and decisions in my lifetime. I hope that you'll do that because the, the, these laws demonstrate 
man's inability, your inability to measure up to God's holiness. And they point to God's provision, a Savior. That's the wonderful thing about the law. You, the more you look at it, the more you feel like, I, I, I can't do that. And then God reveals, he, but he's given you a Savior, and he's given it freely by his grace. Salvation is a free gift. It's by grace alone, not by the law. One pastor said this, and I quoted this last time. Here it is on the screen. We are not saved by keeping the Ten Commandments. However, we're kept safe by them. Amen? You understand that comment? So two of my points, really quick, and I've changed them just a little bit. But why did God give us these laws? Number one, they're new laws for a new nation. And I, I explained that earlier. But Israel has just emerged from Egyptian bondage. They were living with all the idols that God had had delivered them from, and all this polytheism, the many gods and goddesses of Egypt. They lived there for 400 years. That meant that that had an impact on them. Can you imagine that if your family lived under the, the, the daily prayers and, and uh, offerings, food offerings and blood offerings and, and different things that were given to the different gods... Daddy, it hasn't rained in a while, and we need rain. Okay, well, we'll just, what, who, what's that God? Sylvia, what's the God they pray for? Oh, let's pray to that God. That living in Egypt had an impact on these people, and so God now has to pull them out of that land, and he's got to teach them a whole new way to go. So really, this, this is the important uh, point that's being made, new laws for a new nation, it's the same thing that God does in the New Testament believer's life. It's the same thing he did for you. Here's the scripture behind me, 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a what? So God takes you as an old, dead in Adam sinner when you come to faith in Christ. And he takes you positionally, not, not uh, physically, but spiritually your position, out of Adam, places you in Christ, out of sin, into salvation. And all things that were old and sinful and rotten in your life, he's replaced them with what? Newness. He's doing the same thing here in the Old Testament. He did the same thing in each of your life if you confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You see the parallel. You'll see that throughout Old and New Testament. Why is it important to study the Old Testament? Because it just it, it makes the New Testament even greater when you understand, when you read, when you so God now is going to prescribe a new moral baseline for these people that have been brought out of idolatry. Second point was uh, why the giving of the ten laws. And remember, I made a big deal about this. They're mainly positive. Most people look at God's laws and say, I don't want your God because he's so negative. You know, he kills people and, and you can't do anything fun. I mean, nothing could be further from the truth. As a Christian, I have liberty from my sin. I have liberty and freedom to do whatever I want to do. All things are lawful, Paul said to me. All things, I can eat whatever I want to eat. These people, they, they were under very restrictive laws. We're going to get into those later. They couldn't eat certain things. And then Leviticus on Sunday night, I hope that you come on Sunday night. You guys have an advantage because you've studied this portion. As we study Leviticus on Sunday night, we're looking at all those little things, like last Sunday night, the peace offering, which was really fantastic. But this whole idea of the, the Ten Commandments being negative is just a misnomer. The Ten Commandments are very positive. God knows 
what to give his children, just like a parent knows to say, no, don't run in the street. No, don't pick up that burning coal. No, don't touch that, that sharp, pointy object. You might hurt your sister carrying a knife around the house as a little baby. I mean, no's are a positive thing, right? That's the whole idea with the, the Ten Commandments. God knows what we need. So all Ten Commandments, they're relevant for us as New Testament believers. Number one, because Jesus obeyed them. You look at Jesus' life, he obeyed them. He even quoted some of them, especially the first one. When, as we began our study months ago in Mark chapter 1, remember Jesus came and he was baptized, and immediately after his baptism, what happened? You remember? He was taken by the Spirit where? Where did he go? To the wilderness. And who did he encounter in the wilderness after 40 days? Satan. Did Jesus defeat Satan in the wilderness? Yes. How did he do it? Quoting the scripture. He quoted the scripture over and over again. It's in Matthew 4, after 40 days without food. Six weeks without food. Think about it. He hadn't had food almost six weeks. Satan comes with three temptations. Stones to bread, throw yourself off the temple. And then finally, Jesus was offered the power of the world by Satan, who really has a limited power. He's the prince power of the air, as you remember. But Satan comes to Jesus and said, I'll give you all this power. And he laid before him all the power of all the world, so all atomic power, all the world military might. And Satan says, I'll give you this if you'll only do one thing, bow down before me and worship me. Remember? What did Jesus do? Here it is. Matthew 4, verse 10 on the screen behind me, Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan. He hasn't eaten in 40 days. He's, he's depleted, but he's angry. He says, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. That is commandment number one, worshiping the Lord alone. That's the commandment that we're going to highlight, the first commandment here in Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. Let's read real quick. We're just going to do these three verses, but notice with me in chapter 20, God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. There it is, verse 3. You shall have no other gods. The first commandment, no other gods, has to do with, here it is my point, a personal relationship with God. Again, the parallels with the Old and New Testament, I'm going to hopefully show you that as we go through these commandments. I am the Lord, verse 2, I am the Lord, that's Yahweh or Yehovah, your God, Elohim. He says, I am Yahweh, Elohim here. The name Yahweh was the name God first gave to Moses, revealing who he was in chapter 3, verse 14. Yahweh has, Jehovah has the idea of the existing one. And he says, I am who I am. That's how God describes himself. Pretty interesting when you think about it. God describes himself as the I am, which means I am whatever is needed. If you need a savior, God says, I am. If you need help in financial, I am. If you need uh, any kind of, of help at all, God is your help. I am that I am. And then the word Elohim there, I am Yahweh, verse 2, your 
Elohim. Elohim is a wonderful word. It's a plural name for God. And when you study Genesis chapter 1, you realize that word for God is used there. It's the plural name. We see the Trinity, our triune God. His name, Elohim, is in the beginning. Here it is, Genesis verse or chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning. Elohim created heavens and the earth. Elohim, referring to God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. If you were here last Sunday morning, I made a big deal about Jesus being God. Jesus is God. Jesus is not a God. Jesus is the God. Jesus was not created. Jesus has always existed like the Father, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And Elohim, Genesis 1.1, explains the plurality of the triune God that we know and love. Do I fully understand that? I don't. I don't. I'm finite. I don't think any of us will ever understand it. Professors, doctors, thesis have, you know, doctors have written theses on it, and it, it, you read them, and they're fun to read, but it, nobody really understands it. Why don't we understand that? Because God is infinite. He's another. He's not like you and I. He's nothing like us. But we do know from looking at the, the Bible verses, I was going to put Colossians up there, the one I used Sunday morning. By him, Jesus Christ, all things exist. They were made by him. Jesus made all things. The Bible clearly declares that. Jesus is God. So here we have in verse 2 of Exodus 20, God says, I am Yahweh, the self-existent one. I am Elohim. In other words, I've always existed. There's room for the Trinity. And then in the beginning, again, of the nation of Israel, God is saying this to them. He's saying that I am your God, not these gods, not the ones you used to worship, not the ones you were around for these 400 years that you were in bondage, but I am the Lord. I am Yahweh, your Elohim. Again, Elohim is an important uh, verse that helps describe the Trinity. Here's a great verse. Jesus said in John 17, and now, O Father, in his high priestly prayer, he said, glorify me together with yourself with the glory I had with you before the world was. Jesus has always existed with God. This is a great verse for Jehovah's Witnesses, by the way. Come to your door. Just gently and carefully say, um, what, what did Jesus mean by this? Ask him. They have a totally different view of who Jesus is. They believe he was created. He is a God. Biblical Christian, Christianity teaches that Jesus is God. And in John 17, verse 24, I have it here on the screen. For you love me before the foundation of the world. Clearly, the Bible teaches that Jesus has always existed as God. But here's my point. As powerful as God is in Genesis 1, He's also personal. He's not a God that is, that is, he, he is, he's existential. In other words, he's outside, but he's also a God that wants communion with us. Again, Sunday night when I taught um, the peace offering and compared that to the Lord's Supper and, and the meal, the meal and the peace offering was always to bring fellowship and communion with God and man. And Jesus brought us and reconcile us together. God and man, we were once at enmity, but now we have fellowship with God. God has always wanted fellowship 
with man from the very beginning, makes Adam. What does he do? Every day he comes out, hangs out with him. The eternal God hanging out with his creation. God has always wanted a personal relationship with man. He wants to be known in a relational way. I I love this about our God. As we were in Rome uh, last week or two weeks ago, we're going into all these Catholic churches, and there's always these bloody dead Jesuses hanging on crosses everywhere. They're depicted in in, uh, statuary. They're depicted on artwork. They're depicted in all these, and, and you you kind of get the idea, you know, that this, and, and I know Jesus died for us. Yes, he died for us, but he's not on a bloody cross. He's in heaven making intercession for us. He's alive. He's resurrected from the dead. He appeared as a whole man, not as a bloody man with holes, and he had scars. And so we need to see our God as powerful. Jesus, he's powerful. And it's important for us to understand who he is. He he, he has made or bridged the gap between sinful man and a holy God so that we can have fellowship, so we can have relationship. And it's this personal relationship that's reinforced in every one of the commandments. Let me just show you by taking you to a couple of verses. Look at verse 5. Look at verse 5 where it says, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. In other words, I don't want you to have any other God. I want to have a relationship with you. Look at verse 7. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, personal pronoun. Verse 10, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day to the Lord your God. Verse 12, honor your father and mother so that you may live long on the land. The Lord your God is giving to you. God wants to have this personal relationship with his creation. I know it sounds otherworldly. It sounds hard to believe, but the God of creation wants to have a relationship with you, but he does. He was willing to send his son to this earth and kill his son so that you could have a relationship with him. It's, 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 it's mind-blowing. It's hard to understand. But that's how much he loves you. That's what John 3.16 is all about. He, God didn't spare his son. And whosoever believes in him shouldn't perish. But glory, you know, hallelujah, will have everlasting life with God. That God has made a way through sending his son to die for us. So God reveals himself personally, saying here in verse 2 of Exodus 20, I am the Lord, your God. And then notice, this is really wonderful. God's love and his personalness for you and I precedes the law. That's my next point. Love precedes the law and always does throughout the Bible. Again, God reminds the children of Israel here that he's rescued them. Notice verse 2, I am the Lord your God. And then he says this, who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of bondage. Again, it's a reminder that his love never left them. He loved his people. They had to stay there for a certain amount of time for punishment, but he loved them. He brought them out of that bondage. He rescued them, and now he's giving them a law for a new nation. And this is really important to understand. This is where you have to kind of use your mind a little bit. 
when it comes to submitting to the law of God. Obedience to God's law is a joy for every believer. To obey God's law is, is really what we're to do. We're not saved by it, but boy, does it bring joy and peace. Because when you live under God's law, you're not offending anyone. When you put God first, he leads you in, in ways to put others first. And you'll have no problem with the rest of the laws. It's, it's so important for us to understand that. Obedience to God's law is the joy to every believer because God showed us mercy and he showed us people mercy and he took them out of Egypt. He shows you and I mercy. Instead of giving us harsh treatment, he shows us grace and love and draws us out of sin by his amazing grace. I mean, how can you not obey a loving God? When you as a Christian understand that God made you, he purchased you, he bought you, he saved you. He's done everything to take you out of sin. He owns you. When you understand how much he loves you, then you understand that he has every right to lay down some laws, right? He can lay down some laws for you to live by. The Apostle Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 6. This is really important. He says, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore, because he owns you, Christian, listen. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You belong to God, so glorify him in everything that you do. The way you think and exercise, the words you say, the actions that you do. Glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's because he bought you and purchased you. So those are really important to understand. God gives his law based on what he's done for you so that you'll be safe and you'll live a long life. Disobey God, fall into sin, catch a venereal disease, die early. Disobey God's law, step away from his grace and mercy. He'll use chastisement. I've seen so many people, Christians, that they walk away from God in the church, and then they look like they've been beat up, man. They, you see them 20 years later. You hear about them later. They just look like they've just been tortured. It's like, why didn't you stay with God's people? There's grace in the church. There's, there's love in, in, the, in the body. The body of Christ is beautiful. There's, there's people from all different backgrounds, and there's people with all different experiences. There's people to minister to you, and you weren't here for those 20 years to minister to me. And the body of Christ, Jesus died for the church. I don't think most Christians understand how important the church is, the, the assembly of believers and being a part of a community that loves Jesus Christ. So let me get back here to, to God's first law. This is God's first law. It's very simple, and here it is. He demands to be first. He demands to be first. You, verse 3, shall love no other gods before me. This means that in every area of your life, you're to put God first. Here's the problem with us. Just like the Israelites, we are prone to ignore God that we can't see. We're to live a life of faith and to put our trust in the things we can see and touch and feel. We're just prone to do that. Just like the children of Israel, we do the same thing. Someone said, 
whatever we make the most of becomes our God. And you say, well, <laughs> Pastor Lee, I've never bowed before a totem pole. I, I've never given my allegiance to someone else. I, I've never put a little shrine in my house and bow down before it. You know, you go to a Thai restaurant. I love Thai food. I love Indian food. But you go into a restaurant, and what, you, you walk in, there's a big guy with a big belly, big fat dude sitting there on the counter. It's a little idle. You know, and I've never done that. You, maybe you've never done that. Maybe you've never bowed to any of those things. Nevertheless, idolatry, it's always an issue for you and I. Why? Because our nature, we are made to worship. We are made to have relationship. God made you that way. You're made in his image. He's put his thumbprint on each and every one of his creation. And because you're made in his image, you desire deep, intimate relationship not sexual relationship, but deep, intimate relationship where you can give and take and, and share your feelings and thoughts. You were made to be a religious person, to, to know God. You were made that way, and because you were made that way, sometimes we put our own desires before God. In other words, we worship a God, a pleasure. Pleasure is like a drug, right? You just want a little bit more to get a little bit higher. It could be sexual pleasure. could be drugs. could be many different things, sports or entertainment. I know some guys that they live for, you know, the sports time. I mean, I, I'm a hockey fan, but I don't live for that. I, I love when it comes on, but I don't live for it. When you put your sport and you spend more time in your sport, more time in money, more time in effort and thought and, and, and statistics, and you know more statistics and you know Bible verses, whoa! Do you hear what I'm saying? When you do that, is that becoming a God to you? Well, no, no, it's not a God. Ouch, ouch, pastor. It's good to get pricked every once in a while. How about the God of money and possessions? When you allow your pursuit of money to dominate you, your pursuit of, of possessions, when those things dominate you, the God of money and possessions, or how about plans and projects? Some people, you know, it's project, they move from one project to the next, whether it's a, a rebuild car, or motorcycle for guys, or, or fixing up a room in the house, ladies, you know, always seeking something new, seek some new lace, some new shells to go in the bathroom. Why do women put shells in the bathroom all the time? When you seek to do only, I'm, please, I'm not. If you have shells, that's awesome. <laughs> but here's the idea. If, if you only go from one project to the next, and that's what consumes you, that's become your God. Do you understand what I'm saying? That, that's the point I'm trying to make here. I mean, think about your answer to this question. Name, don't say it out loud. Name a person or thing that dominates your life in your heart right now. Name something that dominates your life. What's the most important thing in your life? Is it God? Is it his word? Or is it your child? I mean, I love my kids. I love them to death. I love my wife. 
But is your child or your wife more important than your God? Is your possessions, again, people possess, or pleasures, pleasures. The world's filled with that. All they do is go from one pleasure to the next. That's what commercials are all about, your pleasure, right? Brush your teeth, buy a car, you'll be happy until you get the first payment, until <laughs> it breaks down. Pleasures, whatever it is that dominates your time could be your God. That's why God says here in verse 3, and here's the point, no other gods before me. In other words, God doesn't want anything between you and him, nothing. Nothing can be there. He has to be everything for you. Someone said this, I love this quote, if God is not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. Think about that. If he's not Lord of everything in your life, he's not Lord at all. Jesus said in Matthew 6, here's a great verse for you, by the way. Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon, money, pleasure, another God. You can't, you can't love God in something else equally. You have to love God alone. Again, that's what he's stating here in verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. Or you could render that before me. See where it says before me there at the end of verse 3? You could re render it this way, before my face. Have no other gods before my face, the word before, panim, means above, over, or in opposition to. So what God's saying here is, you shall have no other gods in front of me or in my presence. No other God. Why would he say that to the children of Israel? Because they lived 400 years in Egyptian bondage, and every moment of every day there was a God in front of them. And he's saying, now I want you to separate yourself, and I don't want you to have any other God. Before me, God says, I, I, I want to be everything, nothing, no competition for our allegiance, no other gods allowed at all. That's what he's saying. God says, you dare not bring any other God before my face. That's what he's saying in that verse, very powerful uh, in the Hebrew. Now, we've all heard this. You've heard this cliche. I think we've all used it before. God Family, work, and self, right? We need to put God first, then our family, then our work, and then we can deal with it. I mean, you've probably heard that cliche before. How are you doing at that cliche? How's that working for you? I am so glad I'm a New Testament Christian because I have the Holy Spirit. The Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was active, but he would come and go, come and go. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, Acts chapter 2. We have the permanent filling of the Holy Spirit in which we can go at any time and say, fill me again. We have the Holy Spirit to assist and help, and so we're not a total failure. We have the Holy Spirit. In this case, God is calling these people to have... Him as their God alone. God first. Not family, not work, not self. But here's how weighty this first commandment is, that God first. No second. It, there's no 
There's no second here in verse 2. There's no uh, God first and then these other things follow. He just says no other gods, period. That's how powerful this is to be understood. One of the phrases that came out of the Reformation with Martin Luther and some of those those, uh, uh, Jonathan Edwards, and if you read any church history, is solio de gloria. Solio de gloria. We sing it in a Christmas song. It means glory to God alone. And for you and I as believers, we are to give glory to God alone. We're not to have any other gods. Do you see how this applies to you and I as New Testament believers? How important it is for you and I to understand and to, to live this way with God first. Again, for four centuries, God's people were bound in Egypt and living in polytheism, and it rubbed off on them. But God's amazing power, he's revealed it to them in 10 plagues. He miraculously freed them, brought them through the the Red Sea. Miraculously, they all saw it. They all experienced that. Now, in Exodus chapter 20, where are they? They're at the foot of Mount Sinai. And what's going on on the top of the mountain, remember? There's smoke, there's fires, like this volcano is going off, like in Hawaii right now. But it, they're at the base of the mountain, and they're seeing the smoke and fire. And remember, they were afar off. They are fearful for their lives because they are encountering the living God. And God is giving them these laws. God has shown them that he is like no other. And he says, you shall have no other gods before me. He's revealing his power. Okay, so... We hear the law, we read it. It's a real short one. I've tried to apply it in a, diff- a couple of different ways, but what about keeping the commandment? What about keeping this commandment? Let me give you some practical things here, two possible ways in which you can respond to keeping this commandment. Number one, you can choose to put everything in this world aside and love him alone and serve him alone. Or... You can put everything in the world before God, like atheists and non-believers. They're in rebellion against God. They will not listen to God. They will not submit to God. They will not bend their knee to God. How many here believe it's going to end up badly for them? The Bible makes it very clear they're going to go to hell. That's what the Scriptures teaches. (gasps) Pastor Lee, you said it. That's what the Scripture says. If you don't bow your knee to Christ, if you don't submit to God, you don't pass go and you don't collect $200. You know, you, you go directly to hell. The Bible makes it very clear. For the Christian, though, for the Christian, putting anything before God. Listen, here's where it gets real serious. When you put something before God, it brings, number one, chastisement for the Christian, for the believer. When you as a believer put your faith in Jesus and you walk with the Lord, but then you start putting other things before him, God's going to bring chastisement into your life. Why? Because he loves you. He loves you so much, he's not going to allow you to live in that filth. He's going to try to deliver you out of that. And if he has to do something that is painful, that is, that's an illness or loss of money or whatever it might be, God can bring that chastisement into the believer's life. Or, number two, as a disobedient believer, a loss of rewards. I believe this is the one I believe is so, so apparent. Paul told the Corinthian 
Christians this. This is a lengthy verse, but follow me as I read this. Paul says, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he'll crawl into heaven barely and be saved. Do you see the meaning there? There, there are Christians, like the Corinthians, remember, they were involved in drunkenness during the Lord's Supper, incest in their church. The Corinthians were a bunch of blowits. That When you go to Corinth, and I was there, it, it's this, it, Corinth is the city of all the crossroads from east to west in that time of the period. Everybody from Rome that was going to Persia had to go through Corinth because of the isthmus and the little canal. I have pictures of the canal. The Romans used to roll boats. The boats would pull up. And instead of going a whole week around this real dangerous ocean, they would go two miles across the land. They'd empty the little boat, put the boat on rollers, pull it across two miles on rollers, put it in the other side, fill the boat back up, and it would go on its way over to to, um, Macedonia, to uh, all the Greek islands. So from east to west. So every traveling salesman, every Uh, lust and desire was found in that city, Corinth. That's why the Christians were struggling so much. When you read the letters of 1 and 2 Corinthians, they're all about reproving the believers over and over. But Paul calls them brothers, brothers, brothers all through that text, if you notice. They're just Christians that really struggled. And they struggle with the world around them. And God wants you to be separate. And if you don't separate yourself, he's either going to chastise you or he's going to lose rewards. That's what the scripture teaches. But here's the good news. When you obey God's law, when you obey his commands, when you're faithful to those who put God first in everything, you'll be like the man in the parable Jesus taught of the, of the talents. Jesus taught that great parable of the talents in Matthew 25. There were three men. One was given five, one was given three, one was given one. And then the the master went away for a long time. He didn't tell him when he was going to come back, like Jesus. He went away. And then when he came back, when he returned, he tried to find out what the servant did with the talent that was given. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew 25. Another long text, but follow with me. So he who had received five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five. Look, I've gained five more talents beside them. His Lord said, well done. Good and faithful servant, you were faithful over a few things. So I'm going to reward you. How? By making you ruler of many things. When? In the millennial kingdom. When will this happen for you and me? If you're faithful in this lifetime, God's going to bless you in the millennial kingdom. Jesus is going to rule and reign on this planet that's so wiped out and ruined the leaders and the evil and and Satan. He's going to incarcerate Satan A lion's going to lay down with a lamb. Your little baby can crawl in a snake hole. The world, uh, everything's going to change. Jesus is our king for a thousand years. And during that thousand years, guess what I'm going to do? I I keep serving the Lord. I believe that he's going to give me more to do. That's what this parable teaches. You've been faithful in these things. I'm going to give you more to do. I want more to do. I want to serve the Lord in the kingdom to come. Don't you? If you disobey God, 
chastisement, loss of rewards. If you obey God's laws and, and, and bear fruit for his kingdom, Matthew 25 is the story. I'll make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Big old smile on Jesus' face when he sees you. I, I'm looking forward to that. God is Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. So here's the question. Have you put God first in your life? Is God first in your life? That's the first commandment. That's the commandment here that we're looking at. And we're going to look at each one individually over the next, obviously, 10 weeks. And I think it's going to be a great study. God's going to reveal much to us. Failure to put God's fir first is called idolatry. And you're serving the idol, the idol of pleasure. You're serving the idol of, of doing things or putting other things first before God. Martin Luther said that if we broke any of the other commandments, we would also break the first commandments. But if we keep the first commandment, we would also keep the rest. I agree. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the scripture. I just pray, Lord, that as I share its truth, that your people would, would really rejoice in it, even with a warning, Lord, tonight of a disobedient Christian, a chastisement and a lack of rewards, or the blessing of obedience to your word, more given in the kingdom to come. Father, thank you for the grace you've shown us. We thank you for sending your son to die in our place. We thank you for the fellowship, the personal relationship that you've established through your son in paying our ransom. I'm so grateful tonight, Lord. I pray that you would bless your people with these 10 rules for living, these 10 commands, and that we would see your grace and your mercy as we study each one. May we see our sinfulness and, and, Lord, run to you for your grace and mercy. Oh, Lord, bless now your people. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.